If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. This is Everything is Personal with Len May. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is personal. Woo. As always, representing LA, go yes. Dodgers. Go Blue. Yeah, Los Goyers. Yes, thank you, Len. It is great to be here. Great to be celebrating the Dodgers victory. Finally, some good news to come out of 2020. Been oh, quite a we year. Have, we got the Lakers. We got too, the so. Lakers, too. I don't even, it's almost not fair at this point. Um, City of Champions. City, City of Champions. Champions. Fireworks all night long. It was yeah. like a and, and the violence, but that's all right. Yeah, that's all right. Won't go there. <laughs> it happens. Yeah, I'm I'm from Philly, so I'm used to it. Yes, you have the worst fans that throw <laughs> ice balls at football players and practically kill them on the sidelines. So that is true, and batteries too, and batteries. But I I have to tell you, I'm super excited today, more than normally excited. I just want to say <laughs> that we have a super super special guest today. I'm going to try to do him justice with my intro. NFL great cannabis activist, incredible human being, more importantly than all that stuff, my dear friend, Eben Britton is joining us today. So Woo! Welcome, Eben, to the program. Hey, thank you guys for having me. I love I, this. Yeah, welcome, Eben. And we are thrilled to have not a third wheel in this case. We have a third hero. <laughs> and we, are, and we don't, we don't talk to too many professional athletes. I'm a, this is very exciting. <laughs> Very Eben is a headliner. He's a headliner. He is. Uh, it's so nice of you guys. Now, you're actually a very, very important guest for us because I'm going to have three extremely difficult questions to answer. So you have to be really, really on your game, right? So you're going to be ready for this. This is really, really easy. I just ask three questions and that's pretty much it. Wait, so Len, before, before you even get it, oh, let's, let's it. tell our listeners who Eben is in case somehow they've been living in a cave and, and missed Good NFL games over the last few years. So, having tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, and your professional career a little bit. Yeah, guys, for sure. Yeah, it was, first of all, it was really exciting to see the Dodgers win. Right? Yeah. I was like, man, this is the third trip to the series. We got to get it done this year. I mean, for the city, for the fans, this, right. you know, that was a big one. So, very exciting especially with this insane year we've had right it's nice to get that win so congrats to the dodgers and congrats yeah. to la it's big I'm, I'm old enough to remember the last one 32 years ago. wow good. yeah i was a yankees one, fan at that time yeah so. on one leg i'll never forget that oh it. that one yeah that was a gibbs that was one i always think back to the 70s when like steve garvey and those guys were playing oh, yeah. the yankees well, you're you're old too. I'm old. I'm super old. I just completely dated myself there. I mean, because because my dad would tell me about those. Yeah, he would tell First, me about those back games. in the day. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what's interesting is that pitcher Blake Snell, who was unbelievable. Oh, who, why did I they take we, him out? That was crazy. Exactly. We have to thank the the Rays management for <laughs> right making that move because I don't know that we might have been in a game seven today if it hadn't been for that. True. But growing up. I was born in New York City, lived in Brooklyn until I was 10. Where, What hospital were you born? I was born in New York City. Do you remember? I was born in St. Vincent's Hospital. Nice. That was Mount Sinai Hospital. Side, yeah. Which is not there anymore. St. Vincent's has been turned into a, an old folks home. But I grew up, my, my uh, uncles were massive sports enthusiasts. <laughs> I mean, it's part of how I ended up in the NFL. I grew up playing every sport under the sun. 
And we, my uncle Rob in particular, my dad's brother, he would get all of these old baseball documentaries. And I remember watching Sandy Koufax and the Brooklyn Dodgers and then the LA Dodgers, you know, through all of those great years that the Dodgers had. But I was always a Yankees fan growing up. So anyway, me too. Fast forward. uh, When I was about eight years old, I had this dream of playing in the NFL, playing professional football. I was at my grandparents' house in Connecticut, watching the Jets and Giants in training camp on the news. I thought to myself, man, that's what I want to do one day when I grow up. My mom would never let me play because she always was worried about me getting hurt. Mm-hmm. Even though I was always the biggest dude in my class and <laughs> all of that. But finally, by my freshman year of high school, I had had my mom convinced that it was time to let me play football. And from that moment on, you know, everything I did was about making it to the NFL and achieving that dream and climbing that wow. mountain of playing pro football. Finally, uh, in 2009, I was drafted by the Jacksonville Jaguars, 39th overall in the second round, played offensive tackle, played right tackle and guard during my four years there. I was a free agent, got picked up by the Chicago Bears, played there for two years before calling it a career. Uh, Through my football career, like every other guy, I experienced a laundry list of injuries, dislocated shoulder, herniated discs in my back, torn ligaments all over my body, concussions, etc. What we have come to really understand and know is the typical narrative of a professional football player. You know, it's a violent game. It's a combat sport, especially in the trenches. And every single guy is dealing with all sorts of injuries that most of us have no idea about. And the way that those injuries and that pain is dealt with in the league is lots and lots of pharmaceutical anti-inflammatories and opiates, things that just wreak havoc on your digestive system, on your liver and kidneys. My brethren, guys who are my age, I'm, I just turned 33 years old, but guys in their mid to late 30s, early 40s, are suffering from kidney failure, liver damage, all sorts of horrendous side effects, let alone the addiction that comes with all the opiates that's prescribed. And 98% of guys in an NFL locker room are on a daily regimen of one of these prescription anti-inflammatories or another Mm. and taking opiates on a very regular basis. And so for me, as a lifetime athlete, as a guy who was raised by very holistically minded parents, my parents are kind of, <laughs> I mean, I, I think they're brilliant people, but for the mainstream ethos, they're sort of out there thinkers. You know, they believe food is medicine, exercise to take care of yourself, drink plenty of water and use whatever natural remedies are available before going to a doctor to be prescribed some sort of pill. So I really had this fundamental understanding of how to take care of myself and how to deal with pain and injury as an athlete. And that transcended into my football career, uh, where I had this very intuitive experience of taking opiates and feeling like hell, feeling like shit, feeling uncomfortable, feeling the severe withdrawal symptoms, waking up two, three o'clock in the morning with a knifing sensation in my gut, cold sweats, chills, needing more pills just to feed the withdrawal, not even to get out of pain. You know, these things didn't really ever do anything for me and my, and my, uh, and mitigating the amount of pain I was in dealing with all these injuries, but they sure as hell made me feel insane Mm -hmm. and they made it really difficult to recover. So for whatever reason, let's go back to, I'll blame it on my parents and their holistic (laughs) mindset, but I always, had this curiosity about cannabis and plant medicine. And uh, I always gravitated towards it. I had a few instances in my teenage years of, of using cannabis with my buddies that were super intense experiences that sort of led me away from it for a long time until I got to college when, you know, the toll of football started to take effect. And I really started to feel my body, you know, saturated with inflammation. And being that it's really difficult to navigate the drug testing protocol in college football, 
in the NCAA, I wasn't able to use cannabis that much. But once I got to the NFL and the drug testing system is very, it becomes an IQ test for lack of a better term. You know, the cannabis with the NFL, at least while I was playing, it's starting to shift now, which is a testament to, you know, the group of guys that I've been very grateful to be a part of speaking out and telling their story about how cannabis has been a positive influence on their health and their football careers and life after. But when I was playing, cannabis was categorized as a substance of abuse, an SOA. Mm-hmm. There's one annual drug test for substances of abuse. And you have a general idea of when that test is happening in the NFL. It's either happening sometime when you first report back to your team during the spring. So in April, April, May, or it's happening in that first week of training camp, which can be anywhere from the middle of July. It seems to get earlier and earlier every year now, but when I was playing, that was from the middle of July to the first week of August. So you have this four or five month window where you know you have to limit your cannabis use or maybe not use it at all until you get that drug test done. And then you're free to use it as you will. So I always just, I knew how to navigate that. I knew how to use that because cannabis really became my preferred source of pain management recovery. I had this experience of, man, I take these pills and I feel like shit. I feel crazy. I feel insane. I'm experiencing these withdrawal symptoms. Meanwhile, I'm not getting out of pain. I can't sleep. It's not doing anything to help me heal and recover from these injuries I'm dealing with. Meanwhile, I could come home. And in that same time period, I'm having this experience of I could come home, smoke a little cannabis, because that's really the only access I had. I could buy, you know, in Jacksonville, Florida, or Chicago, Illinois, I found our team dealer and I could buy my bag of flour <laughs> right? and I could roll up some joints and I'd smoke mm-hmm. it. And I realized very quickly that I could come home from this really long day, physically, mentally, emotionally, work to the bone, exhausted. And I could smoke a little cannabis and I felt all of that tension in myself decompress and release and I could relax, I could get rest, I could engage with my family, I could connect with my wife and my daughter, I could take a moment to just put football on the back burner and allow my body and mind to heal and recover. By the time I got to Chicago, I wasn't taking any prescription pills anymore and cannabis was really my the only thing I was using outside of Adderall and that's a whole other story. But mm. for the most part, you know, cannabis became my go-to recovery tool during that time in football. And what I noticed was not only did cannabis have this profound effect of bringing me back to myself over and over again, but coming out of my football career, I was like, man, I'm in better shape coming out of my career than most of my buddies are who were very affected by the stigma, who didn't understand or didn't have an experience of being able to use this plant to help themselves heal or help themselves recover, who are taking the pill bottles with them out of their football experience, so to speak, bringing the pill bottles home. And now they're dealing with all sorts of issues, addiction, uh, you know, their family's falling apart, their mental and physical health is falling apart. So coming out of my NFL career, I had a very acute experience of knowing that my time in football was coming to an end, saw the light at the end of the tunnel, made the decision with my family and my agent and said, you know, I think I'm done playing this game. So it was like, what next? My wife goes, and I'd always had this underlying passion of being a writer, being an artist, being a storyteller. So my wife goes, well, Ed, it's time to write a book. You know, you've got these stacks of journals that you've been keeping since your college days. It's time to write this book. It's time to move on, time to do this next thing. So thank God for her. I got introduced from my football agent to a literary agent. We worked on this book proposal, which really turned into 
a editorial piece I wrote for sportsillustrated.com, their editorial column called The Cauldron, which was all by athletes for athletes. And I talk about all of this. I talk about my experience dealing with injuries and the training room system and dealing with coaches while injured and my experience with cannabis and prescription pills, etc. And I felt as though it got a ton of uh, attention. It, got, it went really far, got a lot of uh, action. I even had my old athletic trainer calling me up all pissed off about things I had said and how I <laughs> painted them in a bad light. And I was like, right. Come on. dude, I didn't, I, first of all, I didn't call anybody out. I wasn't trying to, you know, do say it's anything the truth. It's the truth. about you. I'm just being honest about the system. And I, I, you know, I don't even have any hard feelings against you guys. Right. But that was more a testament to him and, and his insecurity about what was going on than it is about what I had written about. Right. So that really sparked this idea in me of how my experience as an athlete came to a crossroads with my intuitive understanding of health and healing and then cannabis and plant medicine and being a, a truth seeker in this realm from my platform as an athlete, but to really use that as a doorway, as a gateway for other people to open their mind and their perception, their awareness to the idea that there's something other than the pharmaceutical system out there for you to heal yourself, to find yourself in whatever it is, life after a career, life after a traumatic injury, etc. So I got hooked up with this guy named Kyle Turley, and this was really sort of the, the galvanizing moment. Kyle Turley was one of my childhood heroes, all pro offensive tackle, uh, played for the Saints and the Rams and the Chiefs, uh, is known for ripping a dude's helmet off and throwing it into the stands, <laughs> which he always, he always loves Love that. when I bring that up. Uh, but I think it's epic, man. You know, that he was sort that of, video every once in a while on his social media. So he's, oh, yeah, I, dude. He's you know, proud of it. He doesn't appreciate how much that inspired guys like me in our life as offensive linemen and what it means to be an offensive lineman. You know, we're the big uglies, man. We don't get a whole lot of credit. Yeah. So the thing that we always come back to hanging our hat on is we are the true warriors of the game of football. We're the guardians, mm -hmm. so to speak. You know, we're the guys that protect the other guys so that they can do what they need to do. So Kyle says to me, Eb, I'm putting on a panel out in Phoenix. I'd love for you to come and tell your story at this cannabis convention. And at the time I was like, okay, man. Uh, you know, I was still unsure of sort of my story, if it meant anything. I didn't have the full understanding and knowledge around cannabis, the science behind it, how it worked in our bodies. But I was like, yeah, man, I'd love to. I'm honored that you asked me to come. So I'd love to come and speak. So I go to this convention. I tell my story in front of this crowd of probably a thousand people. I think to this day, it was the biggest convention I've ever spoken at. And I get done telling my story and I'm looking in the crowd. There's military veterans and cancer survivors and uh, these mothers of children with these severe seizure syndromes like Dravet syndrome who have all had a positive experience with cannabis as medicine for them to treat whatever ailment they had dealt with in their lives. And I'm having this epiphany about how much bigger this is than me. And holy shit, if my story can help validate these people's story, then it's all worth it. And so next up, Kyle Turley comes on, he starts talking and he opens up with the fact that our federal government has a patent on cannabinoids as neuroprotectants and antioxidants. Patent 6,630,507. And my fucking mind is blown because all of a sudden in an instant, my entire experience in football and dealing with pain and injuries is come into crystalline focus and validation of, whoa, my, intu my intuition was correct all along. And our federal government, the same 
the same organization, the same institution that has deemed cannabis a schedule one drug with no medicinal value has found through scientific studies that the chemical compounds found in the cannabis plant can not only help protect the brain from damage, but they can help the brain heal following damage. That was it. That was it. This fire of passion was just lit in my gut and I had to do whatever I could to learn as much as I possibly could about the plant, the science behind it, the history of it, how it works in our bodies, why it works in our bodies, and to tell my story and to, to help others see the truth of this thing. And so that's just led me on a really fun path in life after football, man. I got to meet a lot of really interesting people, a lot of fun people. I've created this whole new community with other pro athletes and other collegiate athletes who have all shared this experience of cannabis and holistic health and healing themselves through natural means. I created an organization called Athletes for Care, which is a bunch of us NFL, NHL, UFC, Olympian uh, athletes who have all come together to create this new community and a resource and an educational space for athletes to, to come and find themselves in life after sports. I've, you know, hosted a number of podcasts. I got introduced to Mike Tyson and produced and co-hosted uh, Hot Boxing with him. I've gotten to meet incredible people like Len, you know. And Len, every time I talk about cannabis, somehow I always get to Len and Endo Can of Health <laughs> because, you know, to me, it's the way that people can dial in their cannabis use to a very specific extent and don't have to go through the rigmarole of self-experimentation, seeking out the strain that works best for them. And with what Len does and what his company does, you can really dial it in and figure out exactly what works best for your body based on your DNA and based on your genetics. And that's such a valuable tool because for the most part, you know, I've had to try a lot of stuff along the way. Mm -hmm. And it's not always fun. You know, you come across some strains that honestly just don't work for you. You know, for me, they send me out into fucking outer space and <laughs> the outer realms of, you know, right. the cosmos where I'm just like, it takes I want to come couple, back. Yeah. It yeah. It takes me a couple hours to like gather myself, man, and to come back to reality. I mean, sometimes that's good to do. And we need to take those trips at times to gain a greater understanding of ourselves. But for the most part, we just want to feel better. You know, we just want to be able to go to work. We want to be able to love our families, engage in our, with our right. friends and family. And, uh, you know, Lens products can really help people do that. I think, I guess that's the 15 minute version of who I am and where I come that's from. That's fascinating, man. I could yeah. keep listening to that story. That's a yeah. great story. And I appreciate the PSA for Endo. I, I mean, it's uh, very, very uh, grateful for that. And uh, just in full disclosure, Eben did take uh, our test and I went over the results several times on different podcasts that Eben was on. And just one thing he was mentioning about, you know, his adverse reaction to opioids. And that's exactly yes. one of the things that the test brought up is like, yes. you are prone to adverse reactions from opioids. And I was like, thing, thing. So, yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it, brother. Thank you so much for sharing that story. I love every single time you say that, uh, tell that story, just amazing. And it inspires so many people because not only does it inspire more athletes to join Athletes for Care and to speak up, because yeah. there's so many people that are using cannabis that are still afraid of the stigma. And uh -huh. by you sharing that story, I, I think it gets a lot more people to think about it in the way that you're talking about it. So I think especially happens. professional athletes have, are really grew up with that stigma. I mean, still to this day, I mean, I interview, so in my other job at Green Entrepreneur, I've interviewed like, I just interviewed Brett Favre and I interviewed Carson Palmer. They're into CBD, yeah, but they right. haven't really gone down the cannabis route yet. And it could just be, you know, that they don't like it, but it's interesting to have people like you, former NFLers, that are really talking about the medicine here, the THC. I yeah. mean, not that I don't believe CBD works to some degree, but I do think we yeah. need to talk about THC as well. And it's Definitely. great that you and people like yeah. Marvin Washington, all these people from Athletes yeah. for Care yeah. Yeah. Um, are coming out and really talking about the real stuff here.
Yeah, and John, some of those yeah. people may have had an adverse experience. Yeah, the like me. Tried it, right? And then, uh, yeah, and then uh, they're like, "Oh no, nah, fuck that! I'm not going back to this shit." <laughs> no, I got really. Yeah, some up, of them are so. just scared to try it, and then you have the people right. who try it, and it usually, I feel like, you know, I don't know if you know Al Harrington, Evan, but like he's like a guy who you know went through all college and never wanted to try it, and then like tried it one day and was like oh, wait, this is not as bad as I thought it was going to be, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I think people just yeah. grow up really scared to try it because they see the bad kids doing it and they want to keep their body clean. And like you said, for college and all the testing and stuff, they just steered clear of it. Yeah, um, and, you know, for me also, I was always a team captain. I right. was always a team leader. I was a guy that the coaches looked to to set the example for the team. And so for me, throughout my football career, I always kept my cannabis use super private. If someone found out that I was a stoner, I was like, I'm fucked. Man. Yeah, right. That. You know, because I mean, I literally had during my time on the Jags, I had guys that would come up to me and they'd be like, Ed, you're the golden child, dude. You can't, <laughs> yeah, you you can't can. do any wrong with the coaches. Right. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just, you know, do what I do here. But I could never have allowed that part of my life to get into sort of pollute that my professional life right because right. it was just the stigma was too much yeah during the off season when i used to have my shops i did consume cannabis with many many active nfl players just saying so they've they do it they, they don't do, always, they yeah. just don't always they don't, do don't want to talk about it they're they're afraid to talk just, about no it. they don't they don't talk about it and one of the reasons is because of this random testing thing yeah. that they used oh, to the, the active players yeah for sure but hopefully with people like Evan and other people coming out, those minds are, are being changed. So I hope so. That's hopefully the future. But thank you so much for sharing that story. Really, really, really appreciate it. I want to take up a lot of more of your time. You kind of answered some of these, but I'll try to rephrase them again. There's <laughs> three quick questions. And the first one is, what is your first experience with cannabis like? What was your first experience with cannabis like? Do you remember? I guess the very first time I was like 16 at a party, you know, I'm not exactly sure I've had a full experience of it. It was kind of a great time all the way around. So, <laughs> you know, that was very euphoric, but then fast forward like a year or so, it was after my senior year of football and my best friend in life, we went over to this girl's house that we knew because they were doing like a 420 session. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> like, what is 420? What does that you mean? Know, like, well, <laughs> all right, man, cool. I, I just want to smoke up. And this was maybe my second time using. And someone, it was either the bong came first or the blunt <laughs> came first. Either way, it ended up like the seasoned smokers had put it down and it was just my buddy and I passing this blunt back and forth. And all of a sudden I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> I'm way too high, man. I'm, <laughs> I I'm, fucking, I'm the superstar athlete, dude. I can't be here with these people. Right. It was the experience that I didn't smoke for like another four years. After. Right. That, that anxiety kicked in. You didn't get oh my. You didn't get a Nathan's hot dog, did you, by any chance? That's that was my did, that was my experience eating experience. Nathan's hot dog. Just <laughs> panicking another, at, a, at a game a arcade. Summer. Oh, my God, man. Well, it ended up my buddy and I just walking across Burbank from this girl's house to my house. It was like a four-mile walk, and it was basically that life and death experience. You know, I saw my life flash before my eyes. I was seeing, like, oh I was seeing the ether. I didn't know where I was. I was so there might have just, been more than cannabis in that in that. Oh my god. Yeah, I've I've thought that. Yeah. I've thought that yeah. before. Yeah. It could um, be cannabis too, because when yeah, you when know. you're so new and you have such so much THC, it can actually heighten that. Yeah, you know, we talked about it on one of the shows before because what happens is you have this increased heart rate and all these other yeah. things, and then your brain starts going through these uh, stories that you keep telling yourself over and over. Yeah. And you kind of set yourself up yeah. to uh, yes. that kind of experience for sure. But, you know, it was the necessary experience I needed to be like, oh, this isn't this party drug that right. I thought it was. This mm -hmm. is like a fucking really powerful medicine. Yeah, you absolutely. Know? Well, Man, I'm so, so glad you said that. It's, yeah. it's so important for people to know 
uh, that that is exactly what it is. And I, you know, John, and I talked about before too this whole notion of recreation. Yeah, I don't like that. Well, word. yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's a therapeutic product. <laughs> it's a wellness product. It is a drug, and it should be taken with care and yeah. not lightly. It's all about setting, setting, and understanding what you need. And I think people take it way too lightly. And by you sharing that experience, I think people can relate to that and maybe share their experiences like that as well. So that's that's really good. Second question, John and I are huge music guys. I know you're a music guy as well. So is there a song or album that is sort of your go-to? Like I kind of call it comfort music. Man, that changes a lot. But I will say in college, it was after my freshman season and mm -hmm. We had gotten the word that there were no more drug tests. And so we were able to consume at will, basically, like right before Christmas break. Nice. And <laughs> there must have been two or three days where I hunkered down. I'd basically wake up, get a coffee, roll up a J, smoke it. And I listened to dark side of the moon from start to finish nice. yes and it was yes. like it was it's made for that right it was the experience you dream of when you're talking about cannabis use you know it was like i could see the music in the yeah. air you know and it was just to this day one of my favorite cannabis experiences ever was yeah. just sitting down jamming that album Love that. I, I had a similar experience, but not with cannabis, but with uh, psilocybin, with mushrooms mm. in Joshua Tree a few years back. It was probably like 35 degrees outside. Mm. And we all did psilocybin. There was a huge hot tub that filled like 10 people out, outside and uh, started trip and put on dark side. And just watch the stars because you don't see the stars like that in LA. Yeah. Joshua Tree. Just listen to the whole album. And we listened to it over and over. It was in there for three hours. And I was super dehydrated the next day, like shriveled up. I was sitting in the hot tub for three hours. Amazing, amazing experience. So I think you told me that story, didn't you? Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure I did. Next question. What has cannabis meant in your life? I mean, you kind of went over in your story, but maybe in a concise way, what has cannabis meant? Well, I would have to say, you know, I've, I've been saying this a lot lately on the pyramid of plant medicine. I would say that cannabis is the fundamental plant medicine and it's also the gateway to health. You know, everyone calls cannabis, the war on drugs <laughs> branded cannabis as the gateway drug. And it certainly is, it's the gateway to health and mm. healing because it's really that initial thing. Many of us come to, you know, whatever it is you're looking for to get out of cannabis, cannabis has this really beautiful way of, and it speaks to the intelligence of the plant. It brings you back to yourself and it brings you back to center over and over again. And that's really what healing is all about. You know, it's about shedding all the shit that we carry and pick up over the, the course of our lifetime and just getting back to center, getting back to putting our feet on the ground, getting back to our path, our destiny as, you know, individuals in this life. I have one more bonus this question. Bonus question. If All you're right. up for it. I'm up, uh, dude. It's, an, all right, all right, all right. it's a tough Ready? one. It's, it's, a, it's a, yeah, it's a definitely the toughest one. Some people have hung up with, hung up on us after this question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, describe what your room looked like growing up. Jesus. <laughs> Can you remember? Um, well, my brother and I shared a room. Is he older or younger? Younger. He's uh, three years younger than me. What did my room look like? God, my childhood was so traumatic and dark. Man. Oh, man. <laughs> Do you have any posters up on the walls? Always had some kick-ass posters. Were they athletes? Were they musicians? <laughs> well, wow, this is a crazy question. I had a bookcase with some books in it. I think I had a TV with a video game console of some sort. You remember uh, what that console was? It was because I used to have an it was, Atari 2600, which is a day. Okay, well, I'm a little <laughs> younger than you. Right yeah, now. exactly. <laughs> Probably a, first like an was, Xbox or something. Yeah, first it was a Super Nintendo, and then yeah, it was yeah. transitioned to a PlayStation and a PS2. And an Xbox was as far as I got in the video game world. I know there was probably a Sports Illustrated swimsuit calendar on a wall somewhere. <laughs> of course, of 
course. Uh, and then uh, I've always been a huge fan of movies. So I've always, I, in fact, in my NFL career, I started collecting vintage movie posters. Oh, cool. Like right here, Howard Hughes, Hell's Angels. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, it was pretty badass. And I've got some more in the garage, but uh, probably some movie posters. It was definitely a disaster in there. <laughs> it's tough to share a room <laughs> with your brother when, yeah. Yeah. Two bunk, maniacs. Was it a bunk bed for a while? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah we had of bunk course. beds. <laughs> oh, man. He was on top, uh, top bunk, right? I can't, dude. I think we switched off <laughs> throughout the years. That is awesome. <laughs> Evan, thank you thank so you, much Evan. for that was your time. Really, really enlightening. How do Love I follow you, that? That's a tough uh, act to follow. Yeah, yeah. T- tell everybody where to find you, where to follow you your podcast well if you head to my website ebonbritton.com that's got both my podcasts that's got hot boxing with mike tyson you could get a link to go right to that podcast or you could check out my new solo podcast the ebon flow uh which i'm having there, a lot of fun with there's a, there's a really important episode of that ebon flow podcast yes check out my episode with len where we discuss <laughs> cannabis and covid very good right. stuff. And hit me up on Instagram at E D S Britain. I really appreciate you guys having me on. Thank it's you, been Robert. a pleasure, man. Really great to get to know you. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thank both you guys. And, you know, keep up the great work. You guys are kicking ass and just keep the conversation rolling. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day, Evan. You too, guys. Thanks. Yeah, brother. Peace. That was great, man. That guy's that awesome. That guy's fascinating. I want to have him on all my podcasts. Where'd you find him? He's a friend. Uh, That's we awesome. met Good at friend. A, I think it was when I was working with medicinal genomics. Maybe it was even before that. I've been a That's fan. That's where I met him Saw- on the whole medicinal genomics uh, binge that I went on. I'm Maybe it was kidding. before that because it, that was 2018. <laughs> I'm sure we were somewhere doing something at a very, very small uh, conference that so we both got invited and there was not a lot of people there so i saw him and i was like i know that dude i know that dude from somewhere because I'm, I'm a sports fan and i yeah. walked on and he's like evan oh man and and we we just started talking we hit it off and we may have even consumed a uh some cannabis yeah that is always a good is, way to yeah which bond. is a great way to he's such an amazing speaker too he describes all these things so well and i yeah, think it's great you know it's a, it's a great way to be able to introduce people from a you know a different world to this to the plant so i'm super grateful um question for you have you seen the borat movie i am so dying to see this movie and we should probably come back and talk about it after i've seen it my son saw it and the first borat was the first movie he'd ever seen that was like an r-rated movie and so that movie to yeah. him is like a seminal movie and he thinks it might even be better than the first which is incredible. That's like his favorite movie of all time. You know, he thought it would be stupid and he just thought it was really interesting. And he particularly loved the woman who plays the daughter. She's Hungarian. Bulgaria. Bulgaria. I'm sorry. She's Bulgaria. Bulgarian. And she's a flautist. She's a, yeah, I don't know how they found her, but anyway, she lives in LA now. He found her right out of acting school. He wow. said that he auditioned over 500 people for this role. Wow. And she was it. He said the key was that you have to be able to ad lib in mm-hmm. the moment it's such a dynamic role and you have to stay in character the entire yeah. time. So not lose was, it. Yeah. She was amazing. And, so not, you have and an be assignment. fearless. I'm going to watch have an it. Assignment. You have to watch it. And next time we dive in and we talk about it in a certain way where we don't, you know, if people didn't watch it, uh, we, don't yeah, we won't give it away. We're not gonna away. do any spoilers here, yeah. but I'm dying. But there's to see one, it. there's one thing that we can talk about probably because it's been in all in the news and it's been on commercials and you can, uh, the, the Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, thing I do want to talk about that just cause I can't stand the man. And <laughs> so if there's any way to take him down and, and this is coming from somebody who actually voted for Giuliani at one point, which is insane to me to think that I once voted for Rudy Giuliani, but that was a different, a different time. I think it was 94 or something. I mean, that was, well, do you think it's a different Giuliani? Did you think that there's, something I'm so confused by it. I, I'm very confused by what happened to Rudy Giuliani because he was like a, he seemed to be a sort of a decent man at one time in his life. And he really seems to have lost his mind. You know, I had a really good experience once early in my career interviewing his wife, Don Hanover Giuliani, who mm-hmm. is no longer with us. And I thought everything about the Giuliani's I thought was sort of upstanding. And uh, and he just is a, a lunatic. And there must be some, some sort of breakdown that happened there. 
I don't know. I don't know what's going on. So you seen the commercial and you you heard some yeah. of the things that were talked about. There was an interview by this uh, reporter who's right. uh, actually Sasha Baron Cohen's uh, daughter. Yeah. Uh, who's 15. Right. She's interviewing Rudy Giuliani. Does he know she's 15? I know there's some speculation about that. Not that it really matters, but it kind of Well, matters. okay. So we will say that in the movie, there is a communication of her age. Right. But regardless, it could have been after the fact. So we'll give him the benefit of doubt. Uh, the second part of this is they share whiskey. So during the interview, uh, Rudy's drinking whiskey. Then he gets an invite to go to her bedroom. He takes it. And as soon as he walks into the bedroom, still drinking whiskey, he asks her for her name and address in his phone. And then he proceeds to lay down in the bed and put his hand all the way down his pants and start to adjust himself. Then I won't say anything else about that. Well, yeah, so, they say that he walk, he runs in the room and says, she's too old for you. She's 15. She's too old for you. I know that, <laughs> that was- we're not doing a spoiler because- that's in every article, which is pretty much the greatest line I have ever heard in my life. And did, were they watching? Did they know, like? Because it seemed like if he hadn't come in at that time, it got it could have gotten a lot worse. I don't know if uh, this is not a spoiler either, because he did talk about it since Stephen Colbert. So mm-hmm. he had in the bookcase or somewhere in there, he had a makeshift, really secret compartment that he was in the entire time. So okay. he hid in there. It was. Six foot five compartment, really small, pitch black. He could hear what's going on through a microphone and he had his phone. Okay. So at the moment, he just came out of there because Rudy brought a uh, policeman or like a, yeah, a security, security guy who was an ex policeman. He's cased the whole area, made sure it was safe for Rudy to go in the bedroom. Wow. So nobody was watching, but Sasha was hiding out the entire time and he came out and said that brilliant line that you just mentioned. He was uh, adjusting you know, his mic. It was adjusting was underneath his yeah, balls. underneath his balls. <laughs> I hope that shuts him up. I mean, it, the timing was perfect because it was just when he was trying to like peddle this bullshit story about Biden and his son. So it just couldn't have happened to a, a nicer guy. And I don't say that lightly because I I don't like not liking people, and I generally give most people benefit of the doubt and and, and pretty positive about people I meet, but. That is a tough, he is a tough one for me to like. <laughs> yeah. Well, or to have yeah any... and, and Trump came out and talked about that stuff too. And I was like, man, you were an Ali G and he was, you, yeah. he was asking for $500 million for an ice cream glove and you didn't know what the, you were being fooled too. So come yeah. On, man. I mean, I, I could not be happier that that all went down. And I sort of wish that Giuliani got busted even further uh, because he's obviously really got something wrong with him. So you need that's your assignment. Bowl. We will, you'll yeah. watch Borat. We'll come on and we'll have a conversation because Sasha Baron Cohen is one of my favorites of all time. I'm a huge fan of Ali G. Yeah. And uh, Ali G. Uh, Borat. Is, that was the I, first time I, I ever became. Is that your first Sasha Baron Cohen? That's the first time oh, I ever yeah. became. Oh, yeah. I owned, I, owned uh, I, I started seeing the little videos. I bought the DVD set. I, I, yeah. I, I it's the greatest thing. Yeah. Couldn't wait. Couldn't wait. It was the greatest, greatest thing ever in an Ali G movie. And I, I couldn't wait. And Borat became my favorite character on Ali G when he did the show because he did Bruno and all these other guys too. Yeah. Which was uh, Borat was insane. the best character. And and best, yeah, I haven't even watched the Bruno movies. Borat is my oh. favorite. And you now he's just a brilliant satirist. And his characters, if you haven't seen Ali G, I mean, I used to go, I used to work with a bunch of English guys in the sort of mid 90s and they were the ones who turned me on to Ali G and they would bring that's the time when you would bring in like videotapes and show people clips it was pre-youtube and I would just be like yeah this is the greatest (laughs) thing I have ever seen so yeah he's he's genius hey by the way are you wearing any kind of shirt today no and why am I am I crazy no I have the greatest shirts that I just got in and I have not wearing either of them so next show you're all just gonna have to wait to the next show because I just I just ordered two incredible t-shirts like oh, no. some of the greatest shirts and I don't want to ruin it. I am wearing kind of a cool shirt under this. God, I was like, I'm, it's like I'm stripping. Let everybody Look see. at that. So do you recognize that All right. symbol? It's the MLB symbol, but it's actually a Japanese guy with a yeah, uh, samurai. samurai sword and a, and a star. I love this. Yeah. Again, this is that from that store, um, Tokyo Pop, downtown LA. Love Big it. shout out to them. Maybe they'll give me some free t-shirts. I'm wearing um, my, uh, I'm wearing my. Oh uh, my God. Well, sky, sky's, sky's the limit. The limit. That's Biggie Smalls. Cue it. That's right. (laughs) Um, The two shirts I got, one you'll really appreciate. The other one you might not know because it is such a reference to New York in the early 80s. 
and I found it and I put it on my Facebook yesterday and I it's interesting to see who would comment who commented on it because it's like you had to be growing I saw up. Saw it. It was the the radio station. Yeah, WKTU ninety two point three right. FM. It was the sort of station to listen to in the early eighties if you liked you know, whatever the music that was coming out of New York at that time, it, it transitioned into rap or like pre-rap too, like sort of the early, some of the late disco of the, of the eighties. And I just love that station. I love, they had these incredible DJs, like this guy named Paco, uh, Roscoe. And it's just, that station changed my life because it made me want to become a radio DJ, which I never became, but I used to record myself on cassettes talking over records. Cause I just love the way those guys used to do it. But uh, yeah, it was the early days of. Well, it's, it's really interesting that you bring that up because one of the things I wanted to ask you on the last pod, we talked about our best job and our worst job. Yeah. One of the things I forgot to ask was, what's your ideal job? I'm almost doing it, but it took me a while to figure this out. I think I figured it out when I was 14 years old. I gave up on the dream. I wanted to be a DJ. My parents kind of talked me out of it. And when I say a DJ, I don't mean, I mean, yes, I did like a hip hop DJing and I did club type stuff, but I also wanted to be like an on air DJ. My parents were not to blame my parents because, you know, you make your own decisions. But my, you know, my, my family was pretty highfalutin and my dad was a Harvard graduate, brilliant composer. And he was like, you don't want to be a freaking DJ. <laughs> He's like, aim a little higher than that. Like he was very snotty about it. And it just kind of, but in college I got a job. I had a, I had a radio show called Finesse Radio. And I don't know if I've talked about this on the show, but it was like a pretty popular show in college. I was playing uh, urban music. There was no urban music radio stations in the area. So I was like it, you know, me and these other guys that played urban. So I had a whole persona and it was called finesse radio. I was kid finesse. Mm -hmm. It was like a life. It was the greatest thing ever. I mean, everybody in the city, not just the campus, but the whole city of new London, listened to this show. They would come up to the station and wonder where kid finesse, they'd be like, where's kid finesse. And I'd be like, ah, I'm kid finesse. They I mean, they thought I was, cause you know, <laughs> I talk like this. I was like, Hey, it's kid finesse. And, and so everybody just thought I was this huge black guy. And no, I was just a skinny, scrawny, white Jewish dude. <laughs> and um, yeah, people used to be disappointed when they met me. But so that was incredible. And, you know, again, path not taken. I think podcasting is sort of the next best thing. I think if I could get paid a nice salary to host and do this for the rest of my life, I would be very happy. I'm almost there. I'm, I would say I'm 50% to that dream, but I still can't quite retire from my former life yet. <laughs> but with Blend's well, help and with the help of some others, yeah. maybe we'll, we'll move, we'll move <laughs> well, on. You're, you're great at it. So I, I definitely see well, that. And right your your dad you. was probably right. DJs uh, don't make Howard Stern only makes $500 billion a year. Yeah. So I yeah. Think that was the right career. For yeah. He was. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, Howard Stern was WFAN. That was a Westchester. He started off on a, a local Westchester radio station, which is where I grew up. Listen, I understand where they're coming from. My kid has a lot of dreams that sound like they might not be money makers. But one of the advice that I sort of give to my uh, kids, and, and we talked about this, about not having a plan B, yeah. right? But, um, you know, I do, I'm not going to stand in the way of his dream. Like if he wants to do that, whatever he wants to do. Like if my kid came yeah. to me and said, I want to be a radio DJ, which he's never going to say because that's like the un most uncool thing now to be. But, you know, I would say, cool, go for it. Just, you know, take the right, you know, yeah. whatever. Not yeah, even I have a backup plan. Just go for it. That's exactly it. I right. do the same thing with my daughter. My parents, very similar, like immigrants, old school. I wanted to be a rock star and I wanted to go into music. Not that I had any ability for music, right. but I figured out through that, I like being on stage, but I also love like Rick Rubin. And uh, oh, yeah, that was another dream being a producer. Yeah. Oh, my, that, that was my dream. I, yeah. I couldn't understand. I'm like, I don't play instruments. I kind of do dabble here and it there. It doesn't matter. But, if you don't so play an instrument, you can be a producer. Your, not lo your love for music, yeah, man, it's, it's enough. amazing. So. I have a best friend here who kind of, he just moved back to New York, but he's a Westchester guy also. He's written some of the biggest songs that have come out in the last three years. He wrote Panic at the Disco's High Hopes. He wrote uh, Fritz and the Tantrums, Make Your Hands Clap. And he's not a musician. I mean, he basically has the talent, the musical talent that I do. He has a good ear. And he can hum a good tune. And I'm not saying that I'm as talented. He's incredibly talented. But I thought you had to be, in order to be a songwriter and a producer, you had to be a musician. And it turns out you just have to have really, you have to really love music a lot and be a good hustler. You have to, you have to <laughs> love music. You have to know yeah. music. And you have to have a good ear and you have to feel it. So yeah. that, that's that's all you need. That's so I'm, need. I'm kind of halfway there too, doing this. And like even being on stage, I always thought like, oh, I don't know, can I sing? Not, not really, you know, somewhat. But being on stage pre-COVID, obviously, you know, giving presentations and getting those uh, uh, that energy from the audience, that's yeah. my rock star moment. I love that kind of stuff. And it was interesting to hear Eben, 
the fact that he made a decision early in his life that he wanted to be an NFL player, and he really stuck to that. Now, of course, it turned out that he also is an enormous man <laughs> and obviously think, possessed great athletic ability. But, I mean, if he I'm really— If I'm not mistaken, Evan is 6'6", and I think when he was playing, he was like 300 pounds or so. Wow. He's, uh, he's, he's a big guy. shape now. Yeah. I mean, he's he's a, a handsome big guy. But I mean, the fact that he made a decision that at that age, and obviously, I don't know what his parents thought about it. He didn't give a crap whatever they thought about it. And he, he went for it and actually realized that dream. You know, my son is probably his size when he was his age. He's the last person in the world to join the NFL. But if he told me <laughs> he wanted to, <laughs> I'd say go for it. I mean, he's 6'2", a buck 20. I don't know. He's, he's almost my weight. But anyway, he's uh, but he's not a good athlete. So... But anyway, he's a great musician. I think the only way to realize your dream is to at least do it a little bit. It's amazing how many people have dreams about what they want to do, but then don't even do anything close to what the dream is, right? And Yeah, do, and, do it all. And, like, and I'm guilty. I did the same thing. I mean, Me too. Yeah. And I had a conversation with a friend of mine, and I always talk about it. Yeah, I did this. I did. She's like, it's one of your 80 jobs. I'm like, yeah, you know why? Because I can never find that thing that I really love, love. and connect to. So I try everything. I'll do them all. That's great. At least, at the very least, I know what I don't like and I know yeah. what I don't want to do. So that's- uh, I used to be embarrassed to tell people I did so many different things. And then now I'm realizing that's actually kind of a badge of honor. Like, Absolutely. You know, especially now. It used to be back in the day, like if you didn't have a thing, like I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm a, you know, now you can be a multi-hyphenated- I don't even know what to tell people. I sit next to somebody in a plane. They say, what do you do for a living? I'm like, where do you start? Like- I host podcasts. I produce podcasts. I have a right for green entrepreneur. I, I don't know. I DJ. I mean, I don't know. What the hell am I supposed to tell people? <laughs> anyway, so speaking of music, should we do our special segment that we like to call D? It doesn't have a name. <laughs> we still have well, to see what people are going to write in and tell us what we call Yeah, we had, have you heard? Have you ever heard or whatever? Yeah, have you heard? Saying. Have you heard this? Have you heard? Um, I keep thinking of Have You Heard The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. Remember that song? <laughs> yeah, of course. Have you heard? <laughs> By the way, I, I got to admit that I did a last minute audible. Okay. I one song. I've done that before. That you, and the reason why I changed it is because I remember last episode we talked about the blues. Yeah. Your, oh, right. Your, your extreme disdain. For this amazing I, I, I'm starting article. to realize I probably don't like, I, I probably like it more than I'm letting on. There's just a certain type of blues, I guess I don't like. It's just like, there's a certain type of jazz I don't like, but, um, well, but we'll talk about yeah. jazz uh, as well, because I have a lot of things. I'm yeah, no, I jazz. love jazz. There's just some jazz, like smooth jazz. I can't stand it, but yeah, I'm not a big smooth jazz. Yeah. And I'll tell you about my Kenny G, uh, <laughs> right. Emilio Estevez moment where we sat at the same table, uh, which was really interesting. So you want to go first with, have you heard? <laughs> me to go sure you can uh well well i have it queued up go um i'm gonna play you mad villain do you know mad villain i do not okay this is mad villain and i'll tell you all about mad villain in a minute so i'm gonna just play this for you because i think you'll like this it's kind of in our lane Someone of a travesty having me Then he told the people you can call me your majesty Keep your battery charged He know it won't stick yo And it's not his fault you kick slow Shoulda let your trick hold chick hold your sick glow Plus nobody couldn't do nothing once he let the brick go And you know I know that's a bunch of snow The beat is so butter Peep the slow cutter as he utter the calm flow Don't talk about my mom yo Sometimes he rhyme quick sometimes he rhyme slow Or vice versa Whip up a slice of nice verse pie Hit it on the first try what did you think? Do you like it? I like the bass line. I love the, uh, the jazzy sample. I really like it's uh, funky. Uh, the flow is not sure okay. about the flow. Okay. Yeah, not sure about the flow. The flow is okay. I do like the uh, when the music pauses, 
and uh, it hits those uh, those beats that that flow. I do like that. Okay, and, cool. Uh, there was a funny line in there, but uh, yeah, I think it, it's it's got a little bit of a. I think we may have talked about this before. It's got a little bit of a Jasmine Taz kind yeah. of vibe to we that. We love Jasmine Taz. Uh-huh. We should yeah, just do a whole just, episode about Jasmine Taz. Yeah, we um, should do a whole episode on Guru, like Gangstar Guru, like all that stuff. Because it, and I'll play you a song by Run the Jewels that I just, when I was listening to this song, I was like, wait, DJ Premier, I know this sample. I know it from somewhere. And I had to go back in my uh, like, Rolodex and, and go back and say, ah. You ever listen to uh, right. Who Sampled What? It's a fantastic website for figuring out what samples from what song. No, but <laughs> oh, I'm going to start doing that and I will never Who Sampled What? You will never leave the site. It's one of the greatest sites that's ever been invented. little background on okay. Mad Villain for our listeners. It's, it's a collaboration between MF Doom and Mad Lib. And I, MF Doom is the rapper and Mad Lib is the producer. And um, yeah. they call themselves Mad Villain. And okay. my well, son turned I am, me on to I it. am familiar with it. Now that you say that, I am familiar with that album. I actually even 2006. Where, but I just don't don't didn't remember it. I had not been familiar at all with MF Doom. Somehow, like that whole era of like alternative hip hop from like their mid aughts just skipped by me. But anyway, I'm excited to hear what you got going on. You talked about different types of blues. So, and I'm not a blues historian, but there was the Delta Mississippi Delta blues. So the original blues were really a combination and it wasn't specific to black people, white people. It was just Southern Mississippi Delta blues. A lot of people sang the same kind of way. And then some people like Robert Johnson, different people that it was acoustic blues. So they would actually sing with acoustic guitar and it was really simple, very similar melodies. And then uh, at some point, electric blues uh, came in, in style. So like Muddy Waters is uh, one of my favorite electric blues players. And uh, when he got signed to Chess Records, Leonard Chess in the, out of Chicago, he basically brought a lot of these uh, Delta players and he electrified them, like little Walter who took the harp or the harmonica and plugged it in into an amp and amplified the sound. So like, and Howling Wolf and all these guys, and it just changed the way, like I love all blues, but there's such a difference between having this, this heartache and then being able to plug it in electronically and do the same thing and sing the same kind of lyrics, but man, they have a different punch to them. So that's my setup for what you're gonna to listen to. Awesome. Yeah, bring me champagne when I'm first I appreciate you sharing this with me. I here's my take, and I I feel like it's almost blasphemous to not be like blown away by Muddy Waters. I understand. I mean, who he is in the musical canon and his importance. He is one of the greats, uh, if not the greatest blues artist to ever have lived. And I love his voice. His voice is beyond belief amazing. The way blues, it just feels so old fashioned to me, and I feel like we improved on it over time in music both black and white artists serve improved on blues. It is the root of all rock and roll. I get that. But I just feel like the pure form of blues just feels dated to me. It feels, it doesn't excite me. Right. I wouldn't want to put it on and just, it kind of reminds me of like, I don't know, like cheesy, like the blues brothers, which to me is yeah. like cheesy. That In that case, yeah. it's a white interpretation of black music, but I don't know. Jim Belushi, There's something about it that? that doesn't grip me. And I wanted to I, I, because it's the roots. I don't know. Maybe it's the simplicity of it you know, in terms of the chord progressions. Um, maybe yeah. it's a sort of harmonica, like just feels really, like I've seen, it's almost like cliche at this point. I don't know. I don't get excited by it. It's called Champagne and Reefer. That's it's the not, greatest name ever. Yeah, he talks about 
when I'm thirsty, give me champagne and just give me reefer when I want to get high. So what I wanted to do was start this journey for you. This isn't the song that's going to flip you. This is the song that's going to show you a progression. So this is the, the foundation, right? So right. we have, I didn't go all the way back to Mississippi Delta. I went electric. And from there, uh, we're going to go into Gary Clark Jr., Joe okay. Bonamassa, and you'll see the progression of- No, how, I want to hear it. Uh, yeah. Obviously, you see the sort of the way like Elvis took something like that and made it his, but I hate Elvis. But then you see somebody like Jimi Hendrix, who I do like a lot, taking that exactly. music. You can see he's completely influenced by Muddy Waters, but then like kind of putting his own his own angle on it and adding an electric guitar and it just makes it fresher to me. And that's not even fresh. That's 50 years old, that music. And yet yeah. I still feels fresh to me, you know, listen, I'm, I, I really appreciate the lesson. It's a good try. You didn't love mad villain. So it's not like that. I'm not going to take it personal. Uh, I hope you don't take it personal. It's going to be a tough one. The next you're going to have to try to get me to really love Stevie wonder. Cause I don't love Stevie wonder. I love the oh. person. Oh, oh, I'm making a note of that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love, I mean, nobody, I know, I mean, look, in the background, I see songs of Key of Life. I love a lot of Stevie Wonder music, but I think a lot of Stevie Wonder music is super cheesy too. Well, you know, you have that, I just call it the same. Yeah, I guess that's what the kind of music I hate, but I love Superstition. And I love, anyway, we can get a whole super, we can get into a I whole I mean, Stevie Higher Wonder. Ground, by the way, one of my favorite covers of all time by the Chili Peppers. Red Hot Chili Peppers did a fantastic Higher Ground. And there's been club versions of some of his music. I like Stevie Wonder. He's just not my favorite. Little Stevie, I liked. Superstition is really one of the first disco songs ever written. So there are some great things about Stevie. I can't believe I brought Stevie Wonder into the mix. Sorry, Stevie. I do love things about you. I just called to, to say I love you. But um, there are some greats that I think people are surprised that I don't like because you're supposed to, you know, if you like a certain type of music, you're supposed to like all that music, you know, going back the can, you know, back to the 50s. And I don't like all the roots of it stuff. Without Stevie Wonder, there wouldn't be like, you know, Michael Jackson. So, I mean, you know, which is probably a good thing. Now. And, and Jamiroquai. And yeah, and Jamiroquai, so, right. Like he, I understand yeah. his influence. It's like, it's um, it's um, humongous, but it doesn't always have to mean yeah. that I always like the original source. Nobody's supposed to like anything. You like what you like. You like what you like. Is, and who knows and why it, you like what you like. It just doesn't make any sense. It's exactly it. You know, I had this conversation with another music uh, friend of mine who, who likes, uh, is really into music. We are talking about what connects to you emotionally like what really resonates with you so some people really resonate to music that makes them feel happy so they listen to it and like oh man i feel really good about that it makes me feel happy so i connect to that every single time i can i hear that song it takes me to that place for me personally i resonate with music that has a sadness to it mm. don't know why no idea yeah. why it just that something connects deep in my heart and i'm like Oh shit, I feel that angst, you know, and yep. I feel that in the lyrics, I feel that in the music some way, somehow. I don't know why. And so it's not like every single Stevie Wonder song, but there are certain songs that are like, oh, you know, I just called to say I love you. Okay, you know, great. It's a it's a nice pop tune and all that stuff. But some of the when you listen to it, the deeper stuff, that resonates. Yes, Sir Duke, there are certain songs that are just incredible Stevie Wonder songs. Yeah. So I, I shouldn't say I don't like all Stevie Wonder. Just there's a lot of songs that I don't like that he sings that people really love. Well, and I'm I can't say the same for like a some other artists who I just like everything they've ever done, like Tribe Cold Quest. But um, this has been a really interesting episode. We've covered so much. I mean, you got, you're getting it all for free. <laughs> everything is personal. Everything is personal. And I'm like, I got to say, I'm super, super grateful for the feedback and the comments, man. It's been, That's it's, great. been it's been incredible. And it's been an incredible ride. And the, John, like, so appreciate such an incredible Robin Quivers. That, <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> I, I like being your Robin Quivers. And, you know, I've never co-hosted a show before. So to me, this has been a really new, fun experience. And uh, I'm really enjoying it. So thanks for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank everybody for tuning in, listening. Please subscribe, leave your comments, continue, share with your friends. And uh, we'll see you next time on Everything is Personal. Peace. Peace.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canna podcasters right here on PodConX and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.